0: In the Buddhist tradition, it's said that one of the uh, prayers one might make is, may I be born in circumstances where I can hear the teachings of the Dharma that will bring me to awaken the heart of boundless compassion and discover inner freedom.
1: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHearNownetwork.com slash Jack.
0: And in this Kind of remarkable role as um, spiritual teachers or midwives to the Dharma in some fashion. Um, and first of all, what a blessing it is! In fact, in the in the Buddhist tradition, it's said that one of the uh, prayers one might make is, "May I be born in circumstances where I can hear the teachings of the Dharma that will bring me to awaken the heart of boundless compassion and discover inner freedom." And somehow, even if we weren't exactly born there, we <laughs> found our way. Um, Joseph went into the Peace Corps in Thailand uh, a couple of years before I did, um, and then became very interested. Started studying the temples of Bangkok, and then went to India um, looking for a teacher. And and was one of those great moments he gave up um, trying to find the right teacher. He just couldn't find the proper teacher. And um, right after he gave up looking, um, he got out of a bus in India in Bodgaya and went into this temple, and there was the perfect teacher for him, sitting there and giving expounding um, teachings in, in beautiful English in a way, and Joseph just sat down and stayed for the next seven years His teacher Menindra. Um, and I met Joseph in 1973 when he came and stayed in my apartment in the um, Boston area, for a Dharma festival in Biyan that Ramdas was holding at Boston University. Um, the way he began to teach actually in the West, um, Joseph had come back in 1974 um, and was uh, in Berkeley and in, in this area with some friends from India. And they were over in Berkeley, um, driving someplace, I don't know where it was, um, but Joseph needed to use a bathroom. And um, so they stopped the car and went into a restaurant, and the restaurant wouldn't let them go into the bathroom unless they ate something. So they got back in the car, and they went into another restaurant, which wouldn't also let them use the bathroom. And in the third restaurant, um, there was Rob and joined us, joined Joseph in teaching at Naropa Institute. Um, and at about age 21, um, we all together um, started teaching and then founded the Insight Meditation Society, the center we have in Massachusetts, that now has grown over the years to include not just a retreat center, but a study center and a forest refuge facility for long-term practice. And as Sharon said, we did it all with no adult supervision.
2: (laughs) Um,
0: And you know, at first it was a little strange. Here's this big Buddhist center. We were doing it with our our friend and colleague, Jacqueline Schwartz, and somebody said, Goldstein, Cornfield, Salzburg, and Schwartz. Sounds like a law firm (laughs) and not a Buddhist center. So when when they when we started to teach, actually Sharon was the in the beginning was more shy or more humble or something. Certainly more humble, probably more shy. Maybe also because she was only twenty one when she started in the role of Dharma teacher. She might have had the deepest meditation experience, and so she knew enough to keep her mouth shut some of the time. Um, from Sharon, I learned a lot about metta from the early years because I was coming out of the forest ascetic tradition, which was the kind of heroic effort model of meditation, and I didn't have a lot of sympathy or understanding for people going through difficulties. And from Joseph, who has this gift of great clarity of mind, um, I learned again and again reminders about emptiness, even when things didn't seem empty. <laughs> they were always empty. <laughs> um, I don't know what they learned from me, but anyway, that's that's another story they put up with me anyway. Um, And over the decades, it seems like we have all matured some as well as aged. Um, And uh, in fact, in their writings, in Joseph's writings and Sharon's, their first books were much more traditional, laying out the traditional teachings of Buddha Dharma in various ways. And now the two books that they'll present to you this evening are both beautifully written and deep and really a kind of mature expression after 35 years or 40 years of, however many years it is, of dharma practice and teaching. Um, um, Joseph's um, taking the um, question of all the teachings that are available to us. You know, here we live in the Bay Area and you get the Lama of the Month basically coming through and the, the Sayadaw and the Swami of the week. And how does one take this flood of spiritual teachings and understand it, even within our community, because we value different teachers and have different teachings, how does one use this in the heart in the wisest way? Um, and Sharon, whose book on faith is really a journey of faith, and um, both very personal and very wise in understanding how we as human beings begin looking for what is true faith and then developing it um, over the years in our life and in our heart. Um so um, I'm also happy to say that next month I have a new book coming out as well since we're doing show and tell um, <laughs> called The Art of Forgiveness, Loving, Kindness, and Peace. But it's not quite out yet, so you get the um, the two books in hard c- copy tonight first. And um,
1: please, which one of you is first? Joseph. In. Thanks, Jack. He left a little bit off of my bio in terms of... Uh, how I got into the teachings. It's true, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, um, I had started going to some Buddhist discussion groups led by Westerners who had been monks, but I had just graduated college studying philosophy and so went to these groups filled with questions, you know, very abstract philosophical questions. And people stopped coming to the groups because I was going. You know, and I know you've been in groups like that and with people like me. And it was really, I think out of some desperation that one of the monks said, Joseph, I think you should try meditating. (laughs) That was really the beginning uh, of my career. It was quite amazing. You know, I got a lot of my paraphernalia together and cushions and at that time, I didn't know anybody who meditated at all. So it was a very exotic thing. Here I was, young man in the Far East, so I get all my cushions and I set my alarm clock for five minutes so I don't sit (laughs) too long. (laughs) But something happened. Something quite amazing happened in that first five minutes. And it wasn't that it was some great enlightenment experience, but even in those first few minutes, what I discovered was that there was a way to look into the mind as well as a way of looking out through it. And to me, that was revelatory. You know, because there I was, a 21-year-old uh, young person, really searching for myself, trying to find out who I was and what this whole inner turmoil was about. But it had all been done through looking out, you know, through books and through other people and through my studies. And here were those very simple meditative instructions, you know, sitting down and watching the breath and turning inward. I saw that there actually was a way to look inside. And that was just totally amazing to me. I got so excited that I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. (laughs) I'm still doing it. (laughs) So thank you for coming. Well, that was 30, 35 years ago, you know, in 1965, 66. Amazing things have happened, you know, as the Buddhist teachings have come to the West in these last 35 years. I mean, they're really taking root and growing and spreading. I knew the teachings had arrived during one course we were teaching at IMS in Barry, Massachusetts, this, you know, in New England, when we had three unrelated people at the course from Louisiana. (laughs) How did these people get here? (laughs) So something is going on. Something is happening. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to speak about briefly tonight and just really touch on a a few short themes of what I see has been happening over these 30 years, kind of the emergence of what I see and understand as the Western Buddhism, you know, a new Western expression of Buddhism. When the teachings spread from India through many countries in Asia, you know, Tibet and China and Southeast Asia and Korea and Japan, so many countries, they had a profound influence on each of those cultures. Of course, this happened over hundreds and hundreds of years, but the Buddhist teachings tremendously affected and transformed the cultures that they entered. The same thing is beginning to happen here in our Western culture, as the teachings are coming and spreading. One aspect of this transformation, which is just at the very beginning now, but I think we're going to see the implications, very large implications over time is that it's the introduction of a profound, wisdom-based spiritual tradition into our more faith-based spiritual landscape. The Western Judeo-Christian spiritual environment is fundamentally faith-based. Buddhism is the introduction of wisdom-based teachings. Now, each has the other component. The faith-based traditions have wisdom within them, and the wisdom-based traditions have faith within it, which Sharon will talk about at greater length. These two need to be in balance, faith and wisdom, because when there is faith without wisdom, when there's faith without wisdom, it very easily can lead to blind belief and to fundamentalism and to a rigid adherence to dogma. And we see the effect, the unfortunate effect, of this in religious wars that have gone on throughout the centuries, when people are so attached to a belief system without wisdom. There's a danger the other way, too. When there's wisdom without faith, that can easily lead to a kind of spiritual arrogance. And intellectual arrogance says, if what we know now is everything that is to be known. You know, we kind of take pride in our understanding. And that, of course, leads and is its own kind of intolerance. So faith and wisdom need to be in balance. And when they're in balance, they nurture and they support each other. <coughs> wisdom brings some understanding to the heart. And faith opens uh, opens us to experience beyond our current level of understanding so that we don't get confined in that arrogance. This is the first aspect of what I see happening as the Buddhist teachings are coming from East to West, from Asia to America. The balancing of faith and wisdom aspect. The second thing that has been happening over these last 30 years is something that is really unique in the long history evolution of the Buddha's teachings. It's something that has perhaps not happened in 1,500 years, so it's something that's very new and unusual, and that is that Buddhist traditions from Asia which have been long isolated from one another are meeting, as Jack mentioned, meeting here and interacting with each other, often for the first time in many, many centuries. When we go to Asia, if you ask Thai Buddhists what Tibetan Buddhism is like, there are very few who have any idea. Or you ask a Tibetan Buddhist what Korean Zen is like, very little idea because the cultures have been isolated from one another. But here, and especially in Marin, <laughs> it's like everything is here. You know, And the teachers are meeting, and students are practicing with different teachers. We're practicing in the different traditions. Something new is emerging from this interaction. And what's emerging is what I call the one dharma, the one dharma of Western Buddhism. It doesn't always, or it hasn't always, happened easily, this communication. It's not that from the first there's this great honeymoon, you know, of the different traditions coming together and some great synthesis arising. The story with you might be familiar with, and I, I actually opened the book with it, tells of a meeting back in the 1970s between the Korean Zen master, Sung San, and the great Tibetan master, Kala Rinpoche, Remember, this is 1970s that both first come to the, to the West, to America. You know, and in good Zen fashion, Dharma combat fashion, Sung San holds up this orange and demands of Rinpoche, what is this? You know, wanting some expression of absolute truth. And Rinpoche looks a little bewildered. And Sung San again holds up the orange. What is this? And again, Rinpoche doesn't really know what he's talking about. Third time, Sung San holds it up. And finally, Rinpoche turns to his translator and says, don't they have oranges in Korea?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so for many years, there was not this great open communication. But that was 30 years ago, 35 years ago. And I think we've made some progress. You know, Because we're actually learning to talk to each other learning the language of other traditions, practicing in different traditions. And there is this new phenomenon which is emerging in the West. And just as Buddhism, when it went to all the different, or many of the different Asian countries, uh, developed its own unique flavor (coughs) in those cultures, which is why Tibetan Buddhism is very different than Burmese or Chinese or Sri Lankan. Each culture impressed its own cultural forms and methods and language, which is why there's a distinctive flavor to Buddhism in each of these cultures. There's also a unique flavor emerging in Western Buddhism that I've I've observed over these last years. And that flavor is one that is uniquely American. It's it's like this all-American quality. And that is the quality of pragmatism. It's really allegiance to a very simple question. It's allegiance to the question, what works? What works to free our minds from suffering? What works to engender greater compassion within us? What works to awaken us from ignorance, from delusion? I think most people drawn to the Buddhist teachings in this country are not drawn out of some fantastic attachment to some abstract philosophical system. There may be interest in it, but I don't think that's the pull. Or attachment to a particular sectarian belief. I think we're drawn to the teachings because we see in a very pragmatic way these teachings help us. This pragmatism, this pragmatic quality, which is characteristic of the one Dharma of Western Buddhism, not only serves our individual practices. It also illuminates a question that has plagued spiritual and religious traditions for thousands of years and is particularly timely today. This pragmatic quality that we bring to the array of teachings before us illuminates the question of how we can hold diverse, even opposing views in a larger context of unity rather than in conflict? This is the great question that's facing us, not only individually, but as a culture, as a global society. How can we hold divergent views, particularly divergent religious views? How can we hold them in unity rather than in conflict? And we all know and see the danger, the tremendous danger, of not being able to do that. For me, this was a very personal question. It was not an abstract philosophical one. For many years, as Jack indicated, I was immersed in the teachings of the Burmese style of Buddhism. You know, I practiced in India with a teacher who had just come from Burma, and I had spent many years in India and then in Burma, in Thailand, studying and practicing in this Burmese style. And then 10 years ago, about 10 years, I also started to study and practice with some really wonderful and great Tibetan Dzogchen masters. Dzogchen is a kind of Tibetan meditation. The problem was that my different teachers were saying opposite things. You know, so what do you do when two of your most respected teachers, the people you hold in the highest regard highest respect are saying opposite things about that which is most important to you you know this was this was a huge struggle this was not some little passing thought in my mind it really felt like the whole direction of my spiritual life to which i had devoted so many years hinged on my being able to resolve this dilemma And I was framing the question, in hearing these divergent views about the nature of reality, I was framing the question, who's right? Who's right? Because if one is right, the other must be wrong, and I want to make the right choice. (laughs) Well, after tormenting myself, really struggling for some months with this question, I realized that I was asking the wrong question. That I would never figure this out through my thinking mind, which I had been trying to do. I was just trying to think it out. I realized that the question needed to be reframed. It wasn't a matter of who's right. I reframed it with the question, is there one Dharma of liberation that embraces both? Because as long as I was thinking who's right, that put them in conflict. As soon as I could drop the question down to another level, is there one Dharma of liberation that embraces both views, then that began to open a possibility for a new way of understanding. And the understanding that emerged from that broader view was something both very simple and in one sense obvious and really became the impetus for reflecting on and practicing and finally writing this book, One Dharma. It's really the response to that question. I began to see very clearly that the way of embracing even opposing views is when we see the teachings and understand the teachings not as being statements of ultimate truth, of absolute truth. Because if we take them in that way, yeah, the Burmese say this, the Tibetans say this, they're saying opposite things. Conflict. One must be wrong. Instead of seeing or understanding the teachings as being statements of absolute truth, I began to see all of the teachings from all of the traditions as being skillful means. And as most of you know, skillful means is a Buddhist term. It means skillful method or useful method for freeing the mind, freeing the heart. It's like fingers pointing to the moon. If we get attached to the finger, oh, this is the right finger. No, this is the right finger. We just get lost both in conflict and in not seeing the moon. Well, there are a lot of fingers pointing and there are a lot of teachers and teachings pointing to the moon, to the truth, when we understand it as skillful means, then it's very possible to take from this wide array, array, this, this wealth, this abundance of teachings that we are blessed to have, and ask that very pragmatic question, is this teaching helping me to become more generous? Is it helping me to become kinder? Is it helping me to be less selfish? Is it developing wisdom? Is this teaching creating more hatred, more violence, more conflict? We test the teachings not, is this absolutely true or not? But we test it with the measure of pragmatism. Is this of help to me in freeing the mind, in freeing the heart? I think it's important to emphasize that I'm not suggesting that, you know, with this great abundance of teachings, we just go running from one teacher to another, and one method to another, and do a little of this and a little of that, because that really is not that helpful, you know, and can lead to a lot of confusion. But if we do practice in one way, one method, one tradition, for some period of time, and come to a real depth of understanding, where the mind is not confused, where we're not in doubt, where we really have integrated it to some extent in our lives. At that point, opening up to the wealth of teachings is this tremendous gift to us, and it can enhance our understanding, the dorns our understanding and our wisdom. So doing this at the right time is essential. The first aspect of this one Dharma, Western Buddhism, the introduction of wisdom-based teachings into our faith-based culture. The second is understanding teachings as being skillful means, rather than statements of absolute truth. And the third aspect, which I'll just mention, which is really the great gift of the teachings of the Buddha to us, is this... <coughs> Amazingly simple and systematic methodology for understanding our minds. It's a way to look in. And the importance of this cannot be overstated. You know, if we want to understand what's happening in the world today, with all of the difficulties and suffering, we need to understand ourselves because the same forces for good and for harm that are playing themselves out in the world are playing themselves out right within our own minds. In this regard, meditation is not a hobby. It's essential. It's essential that we come to that place of understanding. It's essential for our own well-being and so that we can really be of service to others. Well, thank you.
2: This time. I know it. So that's actually the first time I've heard Joseph speak about one dharma in this context, so it was great. Um, but I must confess that uh, from time to time while he was speaking, my mind wandered back to Jack's introduction. <laughs> <laughs> when Jack so beautifully talked about the things he'd learned from each of us, and I kept thinking, And what did I learn from Jack? (laughs) How would I express that? So the fruit of my wandering mind actually was in part um, to say that one of the things I feel I learned from Jack was faith. Because part of Jack's brilliance is his ability and his willingness to question everything. That kind of questioning, which um, isn't cynical and isn't uh, arrogant, but is really wondering, really wanting to know the truth for oneself, I think of as an essential component of faith. It's very much the kind of faith that Joseph was just talking about. It's a faith where wisdom is inextricably woven throughout it, and it's not the way we usually think of the word faith. So as I was exploring the concept, I really came to feel that questioning, doubting, wondering, demanding to know the truth for ourselves, investigating weren't the opposite of faith at all. They were essential to faith. If anything, I would say is the opposite of faith, I would say that's despair. Learning how to question, knowing that we do have the right and the ability to seek the truth, to see it for ourselves, is a beautiful quality. And it's what is so often overlooked when we hear the word or we think about it. Just like Joseph said, we tend to think of faith as blind adherence to a dogma or Um, abject surrender, unquestioning to some state. We might certainly these days think of it as fanaticism. In fact, the first time I ever taught a workshop on faith, I was in LA and it was a a beautiful canyon setting. I spoke about faith all morning from my own experience of it and my own perspective on it. And I kept asking for questions each time that was met by dead silence, which is never a good sign. So we broke for lunch, and I tried again in the afternoon to engage people. And just then, somebody sitting right in the front row, right in front of the tape recorder, came bursting out with, I came to Buddhism to get away from all this shit. <laughs> and I went, whoa, <laughs> this is not going to be easy. Just uh, last year, last summer, I was part of a conference on Buddhism in America uh, sponsored by Tricycle Magazine, held poignantly enough at the uh, Marriott Hotel, which which was part of the World Trade Center Complex. And I was doing a um, keynote address. I was sharing it with Stephen Batchelor, who many of you might know, who wrote a book called Buddhism Without Beliefs. Being able to doubt and question um, is also Stephen's big thing. And we were doing this keynote on faith and doubt. So I said, hey Stephen, how about if I do doubt and you do faith? just so we're not typecast anymore. (laughs) And he said, that makes me rather uneasy. (laughs) So I did faith and he did doubt. But somewhere in there, he said to me, why are you calling it faith? Why not just use the word trust? It's so much easier. It's palatable. People won't get all riled up. It won't hit that place of, that reaction of all of those misinterpretations and misunderstandings said, just call it trust. And I said, you know, there's something in me that doesn't want to do that because I want to help us reclaim the word. I want it to be a word that isn't necessarily aligned with all of those other elements of of not thinking and, and being separate, feeling special, being frightened. I wanted to help us reclaim and redeem the word. When I think of faith, I think of it as many things. In Pali, the language of the Buddhist texts, um, the original language of the Buddhist texts, the word is sada and it means to place one's heart. So faith I think of as the ability to offer one's heart. And in this sense faith isn't a commodity, isn't it, it isn't a thing we have or don't have that we might be judging or be judged about, you know, whether we have enough or the right kind or whether we'll be condemned, but rather faith is a verb. It's an activity of the heart. It means being able to step forward into the unknown and admit that it's the unknown, not try to, to weave a web of control over our circumstance to pretend that we really have it all, you know, happening the way we want it to. It means stepping into the unknown. It means stepping into the center of our lives, into a sense of possibility, rather than feeling that we're on the sidelines, we're left out, we're excluded. It means coming right into the heart of whatever possibility we aspire to and recognize that it's for us too. I tell this story in the book about this time I was having a dialogue with a psychiatrist in New York City and we were talking about what might be the single most healing element in a psychotherapeutic relationship. And we're talking about methodology and Uh, systems of thought and all these kinds of things and at one point he looked at me and he said if you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall they'll be forced to admit that the really healing element in that relationship is love and certainly I agreed with that but you know those experiences we find these words come blurting out of your mouth (laughs) well I found come blurting out of my mouth For all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that someone shows up for their appointment. And that's what I mean by faith. What gets us out of bed, what gets us to that appointment, what has us knowing our lives can be different, that today doesn't have to look like yesterday, that we can be something greater than the circumstances we face, that we are part of a larger whole of interconnectedness so that the actions we do, which might seem on the surface, meaningless, are actually rippling out into a, a vast field of connection and interconnection we may never see the result of. All of that is the activity of faith. I wanted to read a little bit from the book um, for two reasons. One is that we just had dinner with Ram Dass, actually, who, who couldn't come tonight. Um, but it was it was great to see him. As I'm sure you know, he uh, some years ago suffered a, a very severe stroke, and just now leaving dinner, which was up, up the hill, and coming here, at the end of dinner, he uh, he wanted to go down the stairs walking, so his wheelchair had to be disassembled, and then he had to be helped down the stairs, and then we got to the bottom, and then his wheelchair had to be reassembled, and Uh, He had to get into the wheelchair and then wheel over to the car, and then he had to get up out of the wheelchair and hoist himself into the car. And um, Just at that moment, he was hoisting himself into the car, and I was standing right in front of him. And he looked up at me, completely radiant, and smiled and said, none of this makes any difference. You know that. And I thought, oh, wow. (laughs) You know, here's someone who's gone beyond the circumstances of his life and found something more essential. Uh, so that's the first reason I wanted to read, because this passage, this chapter, actually, is primarily about Ram Dass and his stroke and faith. And the other reason is that um, this is the first time I've ever read from this book in public, because the book actually isn't even out yet. Um, the book is coming out August 5th, and Marianne managed to arrange for an advance shipment. <laughs> so uh, is kind of a great moment for me. During the hours immediately following news of Ramdas's stroke a few of our mutual friends gathered at my house not knowing if Ramdas would live or die not knowing to what extent he might ever recover speech and mobility we were all trying to comfort one another we meditated we reminisced we waited for news and we speculated fear spiked through my body i was in shock and was scared of the pictures that kept entering my mind obsessing over what might happen i replayed each scenario a dozen times Maybe he'll be able to speak again, but not walk. Maybe he'll be able to write, but not speak. Maybe he'll make a complete recovery. Clearly this was all conjecture, a way of trying to gain some control over the situation, as if by repeating something enough times I could make it happen. I wanted Ramdas to recover from the stroke, looking and acting just the way he had looked and acted before. I wanted him walking, funny, brilliant. Fear kept me from letting in the reality. Ramdas was immobile, unable to communicate, facing an uncertain outcome. Through the course of that night, I sat side by side with fear. As I acknowledged it, befriending myself despite the fear, my heart began to open. I met the unknown with, without a strategic plan for control. With fear no longer dominating my mind, my love for Ramdas could free, freely arise. Loving him didn't depend on a fixated hope for his recovery the power of love wouldn't shatter in the face of change or disintegrate in the wash of my own terror. Faith enables us, despite our fear, to get as close as possible to the truth of the present moment so that we can offer our hearts fully to it with integrity. We might, and often must, hope and plan and arrange and try, but faith enables us to be fully engaged while also realizing that we're not in control and that no strategy can ever put us in control of the unfolding of events. Faith gives us a willingness to engage life, which means the unknown, and not to shrink back from it. That long night, I realized that for me, to meet Ramdas's stroke with faith instead of fear, would mean experiencing him fully as he was, and as he continued to change. It would mean that if I realized there was little I could do to help him, I wouldn't abandon my friends so as to avoid getting hurt if things didn't go well. With faith, I could stay connected to him and not let dismay at my own powerlessness get in the way of my love for him. To act with faith would mean learning to care about Ramdas in a way not based on language skills, mobility, or even on his staying alive. The closeness, the understanding, the devotion of love wouldn't diminish in letting go. About a year after his stroke, Ramdas and I were sitting together on his front porch. He'd regained a considerable facility in speaking by then, but it was often difficult for him to freely express himself. This was particularly poignant because before his stroke, Ramdas's eloquence was his own special magic. His lectures had often been spellbinding. Haltingly now, a few labored words at a time, he asked me how work on my book on faith was going. It's really hard, I told him. I've never had to go so deep inside myself before. Then I realized that what I just said wasn't exactly true. Actually, I amended, I've never had to go so deep inside myself before and bring out the words. He looked softly at me and slowly said, That's how I am every day now. Having faith doesn't mean that we don't make an effort. When we're trying to create change, we can pour ourselves into the endeavor and do our best to accomplish our goal, doing our absolute best to speak, to heal, to create, to alleviate suffering, our own or others. The particular gift of faith is that it allows us to make that intensity of effort guided by a more holistic vision of life with all its mutability, evanescence, dislocations, and unruliness. My porch visit with Ramdas went on through the afternoon. There were long periods of silently being together, listening to the birds, feeling the breeze, being grateful to be alive. Periodically, one or the other of us tried to pull up some words from a deep place inside. At one point, Ramdas mentioned someone's name, a person known to me as well, who'd also had a stroke. She has lost her faith, he declared. For 30 years, she believed only in the beneficence of God, and then she had her stroke, and then she saw. He looked right at me, and in his eyes I glimpsed the immensity of what he'd seen since the stroke. It was like looking at a whole cosmos of shock and pain and frustration and shame. But unlike that woman whose picture of life excluded suffering, Ramdas had opened his worldview wide enough to include it. And so he knew that in the cosmos alongside pain was gratitude, love, care, and learning to receive. The look in his eyes was so intense I almost fell over. I told Ram about what had happened to me the night of his stroke, how I'd had to open beyond my desires, beyond my fears, beyond my longing for neat and recognizable benevolence that would make him all better. Smiling, he said, it seems I've taught more about love through this stroke than I have through all my 30 years of lecturing about it.
1: If you have any questions or comments, we'd be happy to try to respond. I'll do faith, Sharon, I'll do one dharma. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> um, the question was about uh, Jews and Buddhism. <laughs> Jews for Buddha. And uh, <laughs> Jibbus, yeah. uh, the relationship uh, we might feel um, between Buddhism and and our roots. Um, I don't personally think of it so much in those terms. I think um, I first was introduced to the teachings of the Buddha when I was a student in college and I was taking an Asian philosophy course. And I felt at that time that the things I was hearing as the Buddhist teaching were very clear and precise articulations of things I felt to be true. It was almost like I'd half known them or I hadn't quite trusted them or something, but they were within me. And, and suddenly they were being expressed in an external form. Um, that's really how I perceive my relationship to the teachings of the Buddha, uh, rather than necessarily thinking of myself a Buddhist, you know, or, or calling myself a Buddhist. And um, You know, I just had my particular um, uh, path, you might say. And uh, it didn't happen to be that the spiritual practices I undertook were in Judaism, you know, they happened to be in in Buddhism. Um, One of the things that was very profound for me in hearing the teachings of the Buddha, I mean, there were several things. One uh, in particular was that nobody seemed left out of his vision of possibility. You know, the um, process of awakening was something that was available to everybody. The potential for being free was something that was real for everybody. And that uh, ignited me. And so from college, I went off to India to learn how to practice.
0: Just because you were talking about Ramdas, I want to add one other sentence. When he was asked this question about Jews and Buddhism in his own history, he said, Well, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> <laughs> and there is actually another lineage that we all carry that is bigger than our personal or ancestral history some part of us that is connected to something that is really vast beyond religion or tradition or tribe. And that's, I think, what he meant in that. And that's really the offering when we turn inward and really look for wisdom
1: in ourselves. The question was, given the immense amount of suffering and hatred that exists in the world today, and do I see any possibility for the spread of a one dharma of peace, of tolerance, of generosity, of kindness, does it seem like that will actually have any impact in the world? Is that the just, you know, I think the Dalai Lama, uh, who often expresses things you know so beautifully and so well, uh, emphasizes the need for us each to start with ourselves and that it's from ourselves that we influence the people near us and the people near us influence the people in their circle. And it's not that helpful, I think, to hold uh, some unrealizable ideal, or an ideal that seems unrealizable, and then because of that not to do our own work. And it's very difficult to know how history will turn. Um, and so my sense is that we need to do the work we can do right? and then surrender to the process and we're, we're contributing our peace to it. Um, you know, as, you, as you know, the first noble truth of the Buddhist teaching is the truth of suffering. I don't think suffering is going to come to an end except in our own individual uh, paths as we do the work, and then as we do the work, we can help others do the work, and so it's it's a one-by-one endeavor. I think it would be also a mistake to undervalue the impact of that. I mean, you just see the influence of one person like the Dalai Lama. In the world, or Nelson Mandela, you know, or Martin Luther King, or Gandhi. You know, how one person so imbued with these principles can actually affect a whole society or a whole culture. Or can can we do that within ourselves? There's just there's you probably know this, but there's one Gandhi story which just inspires me tremendously. It was the time of the partition between Pakistan. And India, after Indian independence from Britain, you know, there was this massive bloodshed of the Hindus and Muslims in that partition. Huge, huge violence and killing and bloodshed. And the government sent a whole army into the Punjab to try to quell the riots. And Gandhi by himself went to Calcutta to West Bengal. And he undertook a fast. And he said he was going to fast until death unless people put down their arms, put down their weapons. And what 10,000 soldiers couldn't do in the Punjab, Gandhi accomplished in West Bengal just through the force of his own purity and his own commitment and the situation you know, of those times. And so I never underestimate the power of a purified mind, a purified heart. It's up to us. It's not waiting for the next person to do it. It's like we each have to do it. And then who knows what the impact will be. Stop one more. I, I just asked one. More.
2: <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. You got it. Yeah, the question was about um, uh, her parents who are growing older and um, A certain aspect of the relationship with them where she has the kind of mind that's very inquisitive and likes to ask questions like uh questions about the the dying process for example and and her parents um say in response just accept you know don't ask and and the kind of personal pain that that that's engendered by that response which feels very annihilating um and whether uh she offered three, three or four options, you know, should I, should I stop asking questions, should I keep asking questions, or should I just ask other people questions, and I like that last one a lot. No, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's, there's a vibrancy and an aliveness to the questioning process when it's coming from the right place within, um, when it's a sense of wonder, you know, when it's a sense of, of wanting to know. Um, When uh, it's a way of getting closer to an experience, there's a way of questioning that pulls us further away, you know, which I don't think you're describing, you know, which is a way of distancing ourselves and and not feeling so affected by what's going on. And there's a way of questioning that brings us closer and and right into the center of the experience. Um, But I think you also hit it when you talked about compassion. You know, I think that um, uh, whatever conditioning and... um, both psychological, cultural conditioning uh, has brought your parents to the this the uh, you know point of view that they have isn't something that you are necessarily going to successfully challenge, and uh, they may not necessarily mean it at all in the way that you are taking it, you know. So there's a disconnect right there, um, and so I think just as a practice um, to Uh, really engender a lot of love and compassion for yourself in that wanting and um, at the same time love and compassion for them you know not pity like you poor people can't ask questions but um, you know but but really uh, all of us we're such a product of our conditioning and um, you know are so uh, such a mixture of courage and fear and you know, stepping forward and holding back, and all of us are, are these complex creatures based on, on so many factors. And it's almost like a compassion for the human predicament, you know, which, which in their situation is manifesting in that particular way. So loving kindness never hurts. Mm-hmm.
0: Again, I want to thank you very much for coming. And I'd like to ask us to do a very simple chant, um, just to hear the sounds of the room and to have a kind of meditative ending, if you will. In the Buddhist tradition, there is a, a great text called the um, Sutra in Complete and Perfect Wisdom in, I don't know, I think it's 80,000 verses, which is then in its shorter version summed up in 8,000 verses and 800 verses. But fortunately for our sake this evening, it's also summed up in one syllable, which <laughs> saves a great deal of study on your part. <laughs> It also is um, related to both the book on faith and the teachings that Sharon carries and to the one dharma that Joseph expressed. Because this single seed syllable in Sanskrit, the syllable is ah, is considered the first sound and the last sound, but most importantly, it's the sound of letting go or opening. So let's just sing or chant the sound ah for a minute and sit with some stillness after that. Ahhhh ahead be one of both true faith and wisdom. Thank you.